You're listening to a sermon on the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Stick around after the message for more information about Mission Ridge. Thanks for tuning in. Well, my name is Rob. I am the lead pastor, and I welcome you both uh, in the room and online. So grateful you could join us. I see the Blakes have joined us from uh, out west. They're camping this weekend, so I'm glad that they're able to join us. Uh, they said their internet there was really spotty, so they weren't sure if they'd be able to stream us or not, but apparently they are. So that's that's fun. We are in week nine of our uh, series, The Partner God Pursues. We are going to look at Genesis chapter 22 today. Uh, I was looking this morning, that's 16 pages 16 pages into our scriptures. Uh, there's, a, there's a thousand pages. So it's roughly 1.6% of the way into the story. We're not very far in. And I think it's important to remember that. Uh, that's going to play in today's story because as in Abraham, we see a man that, that has this mixture of, of redemptive qualities and uh, we'll call them messy qualities. He's got some things about God figured out. He's got some other things that he doesn't quite have figured out. And and this really gives me hope. It gives me hope that God can use somebody like me. In fact, uh, one of our core values is roughly right. And I want to read part of that that core value. It says, God uses imperfect people with imperfect methods and imperfect theology. And if we're honest... If we're honest, all of us have an imperfect theology. Now that shows up in, in two distinct ways, I think. One is you're, you're, you're just brand new to this. You're just 16 pages into the story. You're just starting your discipleship process. You, you're just trying to figure things out. And so you have an imperfect theology and that's, and that's a reality. That's okay. God's going to lead you on this amazing journey if you allow him to lead you. And it's going to be fun and scary and exciting. And uh, it'll cause you to you know, shed tears and like all emotions, all emotions will be there. The other way this plays out is maybe you are got an amazing theology. And like me, you just don't always live it out well. Like, here's my values, and over here is actually my execution, right? On one hand, it's kind of like shooting at a, at a target. Some people, they don't even know there's a target, and they're dangerous, right? They're just shooting in which direction? Well, you're talking bow and arrow or a rifle. Like, if you're at a firing range and one, one person's like, they can't, they don't have muzzle control, they, you don't know where they're going to point, those are the dangerous ones. The ones that are at least firing down range and, and coming close to the target, like you can live with that. But all of us wrestle with this, I know what I should do and I don't do it. Or I don't do it to, as well as I'd like to. And so I just want to remind you to get, again, when we're looking at Abraham's life, he doesn't have it all figured out. He's got some pretty cool things figured out 16 pages into the story. 
And so we're going to be looking at Genesis 22, the story of Abraham and, and his son Isaac. But I want to start off with a strange question, maybe the strangest question you've ever had for the beginning of a, of a sermon. But does God require child sacrifice? No, he, he doesn't, right? And we know that because you and I get to read this story. We know that because Abraham didn't know it and came to know it. In fact, I could picture some of the conversations after this story and uh, the conversations that had gone on before the story. It's like, well, yeah, Isaac is the son of promise, but you know what we do with our firstborn. Like, are you really considering Isaac your firstborn? Because you know what we do. Because every nation around Abraham and every nation that Abraham grew up with sacrificed their children. So I want you to think about that as we, as we dive into this story this week. Uh, Rabbi David Foreman talks about the lullaby effect. Um, you know, we sing these lullabies that have these strange sayings, and we're like, why do we sing that? You know, rock bike, baby, in the treetop. <laughs> Down goes the cradle, baby and all. Like, how is that supposed to be soothing? <laughs> why do we sing those words? There's going to be some things that we're going to read here that we may miss because we're so used to the story. It's so common to us. Raise your hand if you grew up on flannel graph with this story, the offering of, of Isaac. Okay. That's this cool thing where, where uh, it was before these TVs, you know, and video projection and all that, where we take these uh, cloth representations of the characters and we line them up on the story. And if you don't know what flannel graph is, that probably won't change your life knowing that now, but <laughs> let's get into Genesis 22. After these sayings, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Hang on to that. That's, uh, that's something um, significant. It's, it actually comes up at the baptism of Jesus. And we'll talk about that. Uh, on footnotes, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. Sounds kind of clinical, doesn't it? Sounds cut and dry and like Abraham just like, yep, that's what we do. Here we go. On the third day, when Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar, then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. I want to stop for a second. On the third day, 
you want to find an interesting study, look at the number of times that three days or a third day comes to play within the scriptures. It's not just the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but over and over and over again in the, in the scriptures, if God does not show up on the third day, it's a disaster. Take a look at that if you get a chance. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hands the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. He says, here I am, son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Not getting anything by Isaac, are we? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. And when they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out of his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering and instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I'll surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. So just uh, some interesting facts. It's about 50 mile walk from Beersheba to, to Jerusalem. 50 miles takes you about, about three miles per hour. It takes about 16 hours to walk. So a really long day or, or two days, but not three days. I think it's easy to read this story and not recognize, not grapple with the emotion, not grapple with the questions that for every step that Abraham takes, how hard this was. This was a challenging, challenging thing for, for this man of God. And we've got some commentary on this event found in Hebrews chapter 11. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise 
was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So we get a picture through the author of Hebrews of what was going on in Abraham's mind. Uh, the rabbis believe that, that Abraham tried to, tried to delay. In fact, they say that instead of going uh, straight to Jerusalem, he went around the Dead Sea. Like he took the most circuitous way possible to get there, hoping, recognizing that God must do something here because he knows he's a God of promise. That part he struggled with early in his relationship, but this time he's like, he's got this solidly figured out. He's a God of promise. The blessing comes through Isaac. The promise comes through Isaac. He knows this. And so he concludes that he must be a God of resurrection or he's a God of provision. And I think he's wrestling with which one is he? Is he a God of resurrection or is he a God of provision? And I know my own life, when God's asked me to do some things, I'm like, how is he going to solve this? Like, this is a big problem. How do I get from here to there? Like, have you ever had God ask you to do something and you're, you can't see the path? Like, it doesn't make sense. And you go, you go anyway. So Abraham's faith is he's a God of, he knows he has a God of resurrection. And he has a God of seeing and provision. These are the two words that are used throughout the story, seeing and provision. And these, these words have the same root. So five times the same root word is used throughout the story. We'll talk about that. Uh, there's another word that's repeated over and over again. We'll talk about that in, in footnotes as well. And God, in Abraham's faithfulness, he says, here I am. In fact, three times he says, here I am. And, uh, and that shares a root with, with another word, um, behold. So that word's used five times. This story, when juxtaposed to the story just before this, where Hagar is sent out with Ishmael, and at Ishmael's most dire moment, Hagar walks away. Abraham does the opposite. Abraham is the one who's supposed to carry out the deed. And yet he says, here I am. He stays. And so we see, we see this quality in Abraham, his faithfulness. But there's still a problem. There's still a problem. Let's look at the last verse of that Genesis 22. Because you, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived in Beersheba. So for 18 verses, this has been a story about Abraham and Isaac. And yet in the last verse, 
Isaac is missing. And in fact, in next week's story, we'll give you just a sneak peek into next week's story. Isaac's mom dies. Sarah dies. Where's, where's Isaac? Where'd he go? Why is he missing? Son, we do me a favor and lay down right here. So, I'm your dad. I've got my hand stretched out, knife in hand. Tell me, is this traumatic? Is this traumatic? I almost had Lori's son Isaac come forward last service, but we left him alone. It would have been actually traumatic. He didn't know what I was doing. Um, <laughs> the gods of the people who surrounded Abraham required required child sacrifice. Abraham is 1.6% into the story and he's got some amazing things figured out. But he doesn't have it all figured out. He's still learning. He doesn't have what you and I have available to us where we could actually open this up and read And learn through other people's mistakes, right? Learn through other people's experiences. He can't do that. He's God's revealing himself to the world. And here's a man that has some redemptive, highly redemptive qualities, but he doesn't have it all figured out. He's roughly right. And if we're honest, we're all roughly right. If we're honest, our families have experienced some pain the way we live out our understanding of who our God is. If we're honest, we need to show each other grace for the way we live out our understanding of who our God is. We need to love each other through those mistakes, through those misunderstandings, if we're honest. Because Abraham brought his cultural experiences into his understanding of God. And that is something that we all do universally. In some places of the world, it's more obvious than others. Uh, Catholicism looks very differently depending on what part of the world you go to because of the influence of culture. And it's just, it just, and, and I don't think it's just true of Catholicism, by the way. I think it's probably true of Protestantism. I just know that to be a reality that those within the Catholic Church wrestle with. How are you bringing your cultural experiences into your understanding of God? How have you without even knowing, done that. For me, family, my, my mom was, was a very um, 
angry punisher. When she punished, it, it was through anger. And even my dad, I brought you into this world. I could take you out of this world. Uh, words that I've repeated. Uh, things that I saw in my parents, I've, I've lived out in front of my kids. But it shaped my view of God. Just, just my family culture. And of course, we thought we were the functional ones and the rest of the world was dysfunctional. <laughs> Boy, was I surprised later when I found out in my late 30s that, oh wait, my dad was not recovering alcohol, uh, an alcoholic and then a recovering alcoholic. Like that was our, that was our experience. Like alcohol shaped everything that we did. And then my, both my parents were workaholics. And over the years, Christ redeemed that. And then we get these messages within culture, even in our movies about who God is. For me, I was really disappointed when I took this uh, class on angelology in, in Bible school. And I found out that when the bell rings, we don't become angels. I was so disappointed. I thought, man, I'm going to fly. I just wanted those big, I, you know, those big wings that come sprouting out of your back where these where that strange thing is in your back that always hurts when it gets hit. I just thought some cool wings were going to come out of that thing and I was going to be off and flying. That was kind of a benign thing, but culture at large wants to describe and define so many things like what sexual intimacy looks like, what marriage, what divorce looks like, parenting, care of foreigners, forgiving people, conflict resolution, leadership. I mean, Jesus turns the conversation of leadership upside down. In fact, he says, if you want to be the greatest, you need to be the least. I don't remember that in any of my leadership seminars in the military. I don't remember that once. Money, eternity, our culture speaks to all these things. And, you know, there's things like race. I'll bring this up because it seems to be a current conversation. Um, my grandmother was the sweetest, uh, one of the most faithful followers of God you've ever met. I was surprised when I heard her use the N-word. It's what she grew up with. I think later in life, she figured it out. I think she came to grips with that. Like, but early, it's just what she grew up with. Philip Yancey grew up in a similar environment. He talks about this and, and what's so amazing about grace. And, and one of the ways that Philip Yancey talks about grace is to talk about the opposite of grace, which he calls ungrace. And he talked about the church that he grew up in, Georgia, which, which he comments is now a dead church. The building is closed. But at that time, they would, in the 60s, they would send people around the world to evangelize them. 
But if you happen to be a person of color and walk through their doors, the deacons would kindly invite you to visit the church down the street. That's what his experience was. And God had to redeem that. God had to redeem that. And in our families in particular, the way we live out, who we believe our God to be, whether we, whether we lack the understanding because someone's never taught us, or, or, or we've gone so far and then we're like, yeah, that's enough. I know enough. It has an impact on our families. It had an impact on Isaac. And I love the fact that God calls out the, the amazing things of Abraham in Hebrews 11, right? In the hall of faith, we're like we're celebrating Abraham and we should. Because with what he knew he did well with, and his vision of God was growing. But he needed this story for his vision of God to continue to grow. And so the implication is that the partner God pursues builds healthy families. I'm convinced that if we're going to be known for anything in this town, we should be known for blessing our families. We should be known for increase, increasing measure living out what God's calling us to in better ways. It should be increasing and not decreasing. It should be growing, not declining. And we have to recognize that some of the things that we've done out of zeal due to our lack of understanding, our lack of knowledge has, has actually even harmed some within our families. And maybe not years ago, but maybe last week, if we're honest. I've said this, some, sometimes the hardest place for me to live out the gospel is in my own home. Does anybody else wrestle with that? Like you know what the gospel is supposed to look like, and then, but how do I make this actually happen? So some things that we could do. Number one, question the truths that you live by. Question them. Wrestle with them. Why do I believe that? Does, does the scripture actually say that? I've, I've heard people talk about that. I know, we, I know we say it, something like this within the church, but why do I, why do I believe this? Are you tempting to make your God fit your cultural experiences, your political views, your prejudices, your, the things that you presuppose to be true? Are you trying to fit God into that? Because God is way bigger than any system that you could find. I get asked 
well, are you Calvinist or are you Arminius? I go, well, Jesus wasn't either. I'm not sure what to do with that. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed this, but Jesus came before those two smart guys and they are smart. And I think they got some, some things to, to wrestle through, some ideas that are worth wrestling through. But Jesus wasn't Calvinist or Arminius. I hope that doesn't ruin your world. He's also not Democratic or Republican. I think he's much bigger than, than that. In Jesus' time, there were five major groups that represent the, the political and social thought of that time. And Jesus had disciples from all five groups. I'm convinced about if you have questions about that, we could point you to a podcast where we, we've actually talked about that a few times. We could have that conversation, but there's evidence that you had Herodians, you had Zealots, you had Sadducees. John was probably a Sadducee. At least he had close ties to the Sadduce- Sadducees. Pharisees. Essenes. Question the truths that you live by. Because each of us is accountable and our actions have a lasting impact. And if we don't understand our, the impact that we've made, how do we address that? How do we address that? And then secondly, let's just, let's practice. Let's imitate the grace of Jesus. Let's, you know, like if you want to be a great basketball player, you're out there dribbling all the time. Let's get really good at practicing, at, 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 at imitating Jesus and the grace that he shows. He says, if someone tells you to go one mile, go two. I, my tendency is to go half. Not, it's like the opposite of what Jesus said. Instead of doubling, I, I half it, Right? Uh, he says, if someone repents seven times, forgive them seven times a day. Whew. At 2.5, I am done. <laughs> There's so many things that Jesus says that's grace-filled, and I just go, oh, that's not naturally me. I have to work to not grumble. It takes me effort to forgive. It takes me effort to humble myself. It takes me effort to let you have first place. John chapter one, we're we're told this, and the word, which is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us and we we saw his glory. Glory is only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And you may know that I have this military background. And when it comes to parenting, um, I am so good at the truth. So good at the truth side of things. And my wife is amazing at the grace. And one day God says, yeah, but my son... Full of both. I'm like, whew. So I need to practice. 
grace. And in family, in family, I'm going to make mistakes. They're going to make mistakes. If we don't forgive each other, if we don't show each other grace, how does this move forward? Do you think the world doesn't notice when we fight the same way that they fight? Is that more attractive the way we fight? (laughs) When we look the same way, like we need to make family super safe because when you make a mistake, I call out the best part of what you did. Because some will look at this story and say, well, God didn't call out the Isaac story. The Isaac trauma. Isaac had to figure out his own, his own relationship with God. Just like my parents had to wrestle with their own relationship with God because of the things that they saw in their parents. It, 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 it made that challenging. The things that I saw in my parents made my wrestle with God was challenging. The things that I wrestle with make my kids wrestle with God challenging. When are we going to change that story? How about now? I think it's possible. I think it's absolutely possible. If we put in the work. The Pharisees missed God's heart. Like they were super intent on knowing the truth. They didn't always live it out very well, did they? Over and over and over again, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. I think of the woman found in adultery in John chapter 8. And Jesus starts writing in the dust and, and we'll talk on the podcast about what that could possibly be. There's, there's some theories. But the old men leave first down to the youngest. And then Jesus stands up and says, does no one condemn you? And Jesus had the authority and the right to condemn her. Now, an important question is, where's the guy? Because I don't know if you know this, but when you commit adultery, there's a second person involved. Um, Where's the guy in this story? But Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. And then he says, go and sin no more. And so, yeah, we need to talk about how can we do this in different ways. Like that's a very important conversation. But let's be really good at extending grace. So I think about when I worked in sober recovery with my first mentor in ministry and we would have these lively worship time and a testimony and these people that come coming through the doors for the first time and they're not sure if they're going to be accepted, right? They were wearing tattoos. Apparently that's wrong somewhere. They smoke, they, they chew, they go with girls that do. Um, that's my favorite joke for the day. Um, they're not sure they're going to be accepted because the last time they went to church after a mistake, 
they got pushed to the edges. And they would tell us, because we would meet with them, the, the brand new people, we'd, we'd meet with them after the, the worship and testimony the first week and share our story. And then they'd share their story. And they'd say, man, I left the church 20 years ago. If, if my first experience was like this experience, I never would have left. People trying to figure out how to live with their God with all kinds of messed up ideas crazy theologies, but in the mess, trying to figure it out with people that loved them. It's super redemptive. So we need to imitate the grace of Jesus. And then third, I would I'd recommend that we expand our view of family. Family is a primary metaphor for the church in the New Testament. Entire biblical narrative is relationally driven and seeks to bring peace between people. We'll fight for relationships over anything else to build healthy community. The distinctive of the early church is that it didn't matter what race, what creed, skin color, political bent, social status, it didn't matter your family. And we need to have that same view. Our view of family needs to grow. We need to invite people in that, that their family is so destructive that they just can't go back. And that's a reality for some people. We need to replace that family with viable family so they have a safe place to land because everybody needs family. We need to be that kind of people I was talking with a friend this week who's been in Missoula for a few years. She's a person of color, uh, is the CEO of a nonprofit here in town. So a person of influence, a leader. But her primary concern coming from the Bay Area to Montana <laughs> is will we be accepted? has a white husband, children, mixed race. Will we be accepted? And she said, by and large, we have been. Guess what the one place where they haven't felt welcomed yet? It's church. They've tested out dozens of churches. And I said, please, Come to Mission Ridge. I know my people. We're trying to figure out how to do it differently. They would welcome from the stage, but no one would have that personal, hey, tell me about you kind of engagement. We need to change that. That's why we do family dinner once a month. You don't know we want to create family here. We want you to be a part of it. You're invited in. Glad you're here. The partner God pursues builds healthy family. It means we have to learn from our mistakes. We have to forgive each other. We have to keep pressing in. Thanks for listening to the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and share if you enjoyed this message. Mission Ridge is a new church in Missoula, Montana. If you're in the Missoula area, 
we would love to have you join us for worship on a Sunday. For more information about Mission Ridge, connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or online at missionridge.church. If you would like to partner with us financially, you can give securely online at missionridge.church forward slash give. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you have a blessed week. We'll catch you on the flip side.